Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Cold-blooded. Part 3 Friday the 6th of October 1944 at roughly 3.30am Runnymede Park by the Bell Weir Lock 16 miles south of Hammersmith 4 miles west of Knowles Green and just 90 minutes after the bungled taxi heist on the Kilburn High Road the bleeding and motionless body of Violet May Hodge floated in the River Thames. Manually strangled and callously dumped in the dark bitter waters, this 18-year-old waitress had been lured by a wannabe gangster who was too eager to impress his excitable gun mole in what would be a dry run in 24 hours' time for the callous and cold-blooded murder of George Heath. Attacked in an isolated spot where no one would hear her cries, she was targeted for the sake of her meagre possessions and as her screams were constricted by a brute's tightening grip. Before she lost consciousness, her last memory was calling out for Georgie, only to hear the laugh of an evil sadist. When arrested, Georgie would claim that she was innocent, that she was just a naive young girl forced to witness the crimes of an escaped maniac with a violent past out of excitement and of fear. But was Ricky pressured by a desire to impress Georgie? Or was she the real psychopath who goaded him to kill? Her real name was Elizabeth Maud Baker. Although no one ever knew the real girl, as to some she was Betty, to others she was Marina. On stage she was Georgina Grayson, 
but to Ricky, she was Georgie. Georgie was born in Skewen, a small mining village near the town of Neath in South Wales, on the 5th of July 1926, to Nellie, a housewife, and Arthur, a labourer. Described as a decent, hard-working family, who were clean and law-abiding, being showered with love, and as the apple of her daddy's eye, she should have wanted for nothing. But being immature and needy, she was a constant source of worry. As a young girl, she'd always dreamed of glamour and fame, wanting to be a dancer and an actress, and loving gangster flicks so much that from an early age, she started speaking in a broad New York accent. Age three, she uprooted with her beloved daddy to the city of Woodstock, Ontario, in Canada, where he worked as a farmer. But with the Great Depression biting deep, by the age of seven, she was back in Neath. Educated at Knoll School for Girls and Alderman Davies School in Neath, she frequently absconded and ran away from home three times but not because of abuse or neglect. Far from it. As with her father having enlisted in the Royal Artillery and being posted not too far away to Carmarthen, she couldn't cope when he was away. In 1935, her parents called the police when nine-year-old Georgie complained that she'd been interfered with by a man. And although the police investigated thoroughly, no one was arrested, charged, or even suspected. Yet in her teens, her headmistress described her as a habitual liar who was fond of men. As a daddy's girl who got away with everything, in February 1940, aged just 14, she absconded from home, having stolen her mother's money. Found in Swansea, she accused a local man of having sex with her. And although Philip Hill was charged on two counts, he was later acquitted as she was proven to be a virgin and she admitted that the allegations against him were without any foundation. Three weeks later, found drunk, unconscious and slumped in a gutter, she claimed that she'd been indecently assaulted. Unable to control her, she absconded again, and on the 30th of May 1940, at Neath Juvenile Magistrates Court, she was charged under the first schedule of the Children and Young Persons Act 1933. It wasn't stated what crime she'd committed, but it was either a suicide attempt or an assault of a child. Removed to Northenden Road Approved School in Cheshire, where unruly girls were sent instead of going to prison. Again, her next headmistress said she was a born liar, and this became the hallmark of her life. Released on license to her home in September 1942, aged 16, her mother struggled to control her, and although she claimed to be good and innocent, 
Neath police stated that she was a strong-willed woman of very loose morals. Therefore, marriage should have been the making of her. And although on the 20th of November 1942, she married a serving soldier named Stanley Jones at Neath Registry Office, just one day later, she cheated on him, whilst claiming he was a prisoner of war whilst fighting in Arnhem. Elizabeth, known as Betty, alias Georgina Grayson, lived a life of lies, theft and deception. And desperate for fame and glamour, in 1943, she fled to London. It defies belief, but while one and a half million civilians fled the war-ravaged, bomb-created city of London for the safety of distant Welsh towns like Neath, Georgie headed smack bang for the danger zone. After several jobs as a chambermaid, a barmaid, and as a waitress at Paul's Cafe, where she met Harry, an old war reservist who became her friend and a father figure, she claimed, I worked as a cabaret dancer and a striptease artiste at several infamous venues such as the Panama Club in Knightsbridge and the Blue Lagoon in Carnaby Street. Only when checked, there was no evidence to prove that. Living in lodgings across the smoking ruins of West London, on the 19th of June 1944, just two weeks after D-Day, Georgie's mother received a telegram in which she wrote, Mummy, I'm fine and lucky to be alive. As her lodgings on Edith Road had been bombed and reduced to a blackened shell. Like many, she'd survived. And she wore a bandage on her leg with pride. Only this was all a lie for cash and sympathy. In May 1944, Georgie was arrested for being in possession of stolen goods, which were rationed and vital as war supplies, such as chocolate, eggs, flour and milk, as well as 300 cigarettes, two haversacks and a large reel of parachute silk, which she planned to make into several dresses so she'd look pretty. Having flirted with American GIs and coerced them into bringing her illegal treats in return for a little love and some special attention. As a first offence, all she received was a written warning. A war was raging. Children were starving. And as millions were dying in their beds or being slaughtered on the beaches, Without an ounce of compassion in her bones, she cared for no one but herself. On Friday the 22nd of September 1944, Georgie moved into a small second floor front room at 311 King Street, owned by Mrs. Edris Evans. At first, the landlady liked her. She found her charming, sweet and naive. But quickly realizing that this was all just a facade, 
soon enough, she saw that the real Georgie was a ruthless liar who could manipulate men into doing anything for her to keep her happy and keen. Eleven days later, she met Private Carl Halton, alias Rick Yanlin, a man of danger and death. But having fallen for his lies, she believed he was the answer to her dreams. Friday the 6th of October 1944, at roughly 2.40am, driving south from Cricklewood. Ricky Allen drove the six-wheeled, two-and-a-half-ton U.S. Army truck down the isolated Edgware Road. The cab was gripped in a stony silence, as again he had failed Georgie. After a cowardly attack on a girl on a bike, a pub robbery he'd stopped before it even began, and now a bungled heist of a taxi in Kilburn. He needed to impress Georgie, but all he looked was foolish, like a little boy playing at being a gangster. Ricky claimed, I was driving along Edgware Road when Georgie said, There's a girl. Stop. According to Ricky, it was Georgie's decision to pick up a girl, to attack her, and to dump her. Her name was Violet May Hodge, an 18-year-old waitress from Philwood Park in Bristol, who was making her way home. I stopped the truck, and she asked the girl where she was going. She said Paddington to catch a train to Bristol. I told her, I was going to Reading, and I would take her there. Keen to save money, it made sense to Violet, as who wouldn't trust a serviceman and his girlfriend sitting in a US Army truck? Throwing a suitcase into the back, it must have been a thrill for this young girl to ride in an Army truck and to meet a real second lieutenant. As feeling safe, she chatted to the Welsh girl, who was the same age. We rode out of London along the river, taking a familiar route through Hammersmith, Chiswick, and following the Thames, through Brentford, Teddington, Shepperton, Egham, Staines-upon-Thames, and cutting through Runnymede Park towards Reading, not far from the ditch in Knowles Green. Just beside the Bell Weir Lock, Ricky stopped the truck, claiming... We've got a flat tyre. It was dark, quiet and isolated. With no houses in sight and no people to be seen. Ricky told the girls to both get out. So as he searched for the tools, he could check up the truck. A job nearly impossible for one man to do. I told Georgie to get the girls back to me, Ricky said. She said, all right. Georgie gave her a cigarette and lit one for herself. 
as if the two girls were just passing time and nattering. But somehow, Violet knew something was wrong. Whether it was their furtive glances, the even tires, or having overheard Ricky. Whispering to Ricky, Georgie said, I think she's wise to it. So to distract her, Georgie got back in the truck to get some blocks. And as she did so, Ricky later confessed, I hit the girl over the head with an iron bar. It was a one kilo tire iron, heavier than a brick and harder than a human skull. As the fast whack on the back of the girl's head caused her to stumble, to stagger, and blood to trickle. But oddly, she didn't fall. Violet screamed, Georgie! Her eyes wide with terror. Georgie, don't let him do it! As the tire iron came downwards again on her bleeding head. As she pleaded, Stop it! Make him stop! Only Georgie didn't. She just watched. And as the young girl remained upright, her pale face now soaked with a river of red. As Ricky seized her throat and his hands began to strangle her, at her tears, Georgie just laughed. Ricky confessed. She fell. I knelt on her arm with my left leg, my right leg in her back, and her neck in a headlock. The girl was waving her right arm, panicked and terrified. Georgie knelt on it, and as the young girl was overpowered and lay bleeding and gasping for air, she went through her pockets. Georgie later stated, The girl made a gurgling sound, and I saw blood coming from her mouth. She was struggling as Ricky tightened his grip. I held her legs for about ten minutes before she became limp. By the time the girl ceased struggling, Ricky said, we carried her over to the river and dumped her three feet from the edge. Tossed like litter. Floating in the water lay the bleeding and motionless body of Violet May Hodge. Face down in the cold, bitter waters, as her attackers drove away, laughing like jackals, they tossed her treasured photos and letters from her loved ones into the road. Proud of their score of two coats, some slacks and six shillings. Georgie later confessed, I thought she was dead. Only she wasn't. Bleeding and unconscious, although her body was partially submerged on the riverbank, with the low tide going out rather than in, she didn't drift, she just lay there, her head in the mud, slowly breathing. Coming to, 
a shivering and sodden violet would state, I reached an overhanging branch of a tree, and I dragged myself out of the water. I saw that the lorry had gone, so I made my way to a cottage. Helped by good people, she was taken to Windsor Emergency Hospital, suffering a head wound and a ruptured eye. Physically, she would make a good recovery and become a key witness. Friday the 6th of October, the day of George Heath's murder. As callous cold-bloody killers do, we stayed in bed until 3pm, having savoured a good night's sleep. With the victim's suitcase in George's wardrobe, spotting his victim's blood on his trousers, Ricky said, I gave Georgie the ticket for the B4 bag I'd stashed in Hammersmith Tube Station. And wearing a fresh uniform in the name of Verna J. Meyer. That night, they would kill a lone cab driver and dump his body in a ditch. And having promised Ricky that, she'd sponge the blood out of the trousers and then send them to the cleaners. It was actually Ricky who she'd planned to send to the cleaners, as she knew he was cheating on her. Monday the 9th of October 1944, three days after George Heath's murder. When the police were hunting his killers, and a grey Ford V8 saloon, registration plate RD8955, with a missing handbrake return spring and the wheels exactly 4 feet and 10 inches apart. For safety, Ricky had hidden it in the old Gaumont Cinema car park. But with the cold shoulder and the stony silence between both killers having returned, he drove the car around to 159 Fulham Palace Road, to impress his new girlfriend, 16-year-old Joyce Alma Cook. All it took to crack the case was a lone constable with a keen eye walking his beat in Lurgan Avenue. At 8.10pm, they blocked the street. Several detectives lay in wait, and as Ricky exited his girlfriend's house 50 minutes later, they rushed him before he could flee. Pulling him out of the driver's seat, although he had wiped away any prints or blood, they found the 45 caliber Colt Remington pistol in his hip pocket and six bullets exactly matching those which were used to kill George Heath. As expected, as a habitual liar, and a thief who had stolen a gun, two uniforms, and a two and a half ton truck to commit a spree of theft, assault, attempted murder, and murder. His statement to First Lieutenant Robert DeMott of the US Army Military Police was a sack of lies. Of the gun, he said, It's mine. I always carry it. I used it last week to shoot at rabbits, but I missed. Of the truck, he denied everything, stating, 
I don't know anything about it. I found it in a car park. Of the car. George's car. He said, I found it yesterday in a woods near my base. Which may have been feasible, as there were no eyewitnesses who had seen him driving it on the day of George's murder. And as for the murder itself, he denied being near Chiswick, Hammersmith or Knowles Green, stating, I slept at the Eccleston Hotel every night except the Tuesday and the Saturday, and I spent that night with a Piccadilly commando, this being slang for a prostitute, which couldn't be verified. So far, he hadn't mentioned George's name once, having thought that he could wheedle his way through this with his lies, and therefore proving his manliness by outsmarting the police. Only when he was asked where he'd slept on the Tuesday and Saturday that he was not at the hotel. Not being blessed with brains, he said, My girlfriend's, Georgina Grayson. Driven by the police to her second-floor lodging at 311 King Street in Hammersmith, they arrested Georgie, who was not best pleased at her so-called boyfriend's betrayal, and found Violet's clothing, her suitcase, and the bloodied trousers that Georgie had said she'd sponge and take to the cleaners, but didn't. In her first statement... Georgie couldn't help but lie to save her own skin. And as a selfish little girl who only thought of herself, seeing her aliases, her fake job as a dancer, her history of accusing innocent men of assaulting her, and even the bandage on her leg from a bombing she hadn't been involved with, the police knew that every word which came out of her mouth was a very distant cousin to the truth. blaming Ricky for their crimes and stating when I said I wanted to do something dangerous I meant go over Germany in a bomber but he got me wrong although she would admit a minor part in his spree with only circumstantial evidence against her the detectives had no choice but to let her go the investigation would stall without a confession. They had the car, but with no fingerprints or blood. They had the gun, but again it was clean. Assuring those good people who had bought George's possessions of Ricky, like the cigarette case, the lighter, the watch with the luminous figures, the fountain pen and the silver pencil, that they would not be arrested for possession as murder was a much more serious offence. They all came forward as witnesses. And the police also had 18-year-old Violet May Hodge, who had seen her attackers' faces and heard their names. But they still needed a confession. So with Ricky knowing full well that George's words could convict him, and that if she blamed him for everything, that he would hang. He opened up. In his second statement, 
Vicky confessed, I've never broken into any pubs or shops in Hammersmith or elsewhere. I told Georgie that I'd been running around with a mob in Chicago. This was not true. It was just build-up for me. It was all just a lie to impress a girl, and the evidence proved it. As for the murder of George Heath, when questioned, Ricky said, When the car stopped, I was holding my loaded and cocked pistol in front of my chest. I looked over at Georgie. Quite why, we don't know. I intended to fire through the car, to scare the driver, that's all. But just as I pulled the trigger, he reached over the back seat to open the left rear door for Georgie. When I fired, I knew I had hit him. As I heard him groan, no. In his own words, it was an accident. A mistake made by a nervous boy who was desperate to impress a girl. What he needed now was for George's story to back him up. As based on her evidence, if convicted, the best he would get would be a life sentence for manslaughter and not a death sentence for murder. And so the life of a cold-blooded killer hung on the testimony of another. That day, while walking free in Hammersmith, it's ironic that Georgie paid a visit to New Pin Cleaners in King Street, where she had promised Ricky that she would take his bloodstained trousers, but didn't. Inside, bumping into Harry Kimberley, an old war reservist who'd become her friend and a father figure, when she told him her story and asked for his thoughts, he sagely said, The best thing you can do is to go back to the police station and tell the truth. Returning to Hammersmith Police Station, Georgie made a second statement. And although it began with the words, I wish to tell you the whole truth about my association with Ricky Allen and what happened. Whether she would blame him, stating, I lied because Ricky had threatened me. He counteracted by blaming her and claiming, if it hadn't been for her, I wouldn't have shot Heath. Charged with the armed robbery of John Strangeway, the intent to murder Violet May Hodge, and the murder of taxi driver George Edward Heath. Their trial began at the Old Bailey on the 9th of January 1945. Across a six-day trial, both Carl Halton, alias Ricky Allen, and Elizabeth Jones, alias Georgina Grayson, spoke in the witness box for hours of their innocence and blamed the other. With Georgie professing that she was just an innocent girl who'd been dragged along for the ride, and Ricky claiming it was all her idea, 
but with overwhelming evidence of their guilt stacked against them. On the 15th of January 1945, 22-year-old Carl Gustav Holton and 18-year-old Elizabeth Moore Jones were found guilty of willful murder. With the only permissible sentence, given the gravity of their crimes, being death, they both awaited the hangman's noose. But with the jury, for whatever reason, requesting a recommendation of mercy for her, although they had both failed at appeal, the Secretary of State stepped in and reprieved her. On the 8th of March 1945, at Pentonville Prison, Carl Halton was executed by hanging, becoming the first US soldier to be executed on British soil. Back in Boston, although his wife Rita and his daughter were given a chance to say goodbye to him, with the transatlantic telephone line having failed, they never spoke. Reprieved two days before execution, Elizabeth Jones served just nine years of her life sentence. Released from prison in 1954, she later remarried, had children, and as far as we know, she remained good. But what was the truth? Which was the lie? And who was the cold-blooded psychopath? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Oh, yes. Uh, it's the last scripted recording of the year. Yeah. What day is it? 23rd of November. Well done, Michael. 
the day after JFK's assassination, the 60th anniversary, of which I put out some rather good videos during the week. Bloody TikTok, bloody TikTok. I hate TikTok and all that. It's really annoying me now. What I've realised is if you put in the effort into something, it goes nowhere. Like I, I spent good couple of days making these little videos and writing them and making them nice and and interesting almost no reaction to it at all like on the 60th anniversary of jfk's assassination on the day with all, all tacked up and all probably done no one gave a shit a couple of days ago a couple of weeks ago i posted a, a little video of a car that had caught fire about a week ago and was just burnt out that's had fifteen thousand views already amazing i never get it i did a really good video that i put on youtube ages ago about this guy who went in and attacked a prostitute in a flat on youtube really nicely made video it got 300 views i did the same video a shit version not scripted just literally walking past it went this is a building blah 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 posted it on tiktok 1.6 million views so therefore that concludes people who use tiktok are fucking idiots absolute idiots just no idea of quality but there we go the downfall of our country is going to be tiktok because no one reads books anymore they don't people are becoming thicker aren't they oh anyway i'm going to keep doing my thing i don't care how whether people stop listening i'm going to keep doing my thing because i think i think history is important you need to learn from the past uh, and also we need to bring back good storytelling not just oh my god so anyway there was this guy and uh oh my god he was so bad oh my god those podcasts oh dear anyway um so that was the last episode of this year i'm gonna don't forget i'm gonna do the extra bits because there's a lot to cover in this episode i as mentioned i was gonna it's gonna be a four-parter i felt it better to cut it down to three because uh, there wasn't enough kind of meat in the story to carry it into four episodes. So we're going to do extra bits coming out. Uh, I, I think I'll probably put them out just after this episode so you can enjoy them. They will be the letters that Georgie wrote from prison. They're really interesting. And also Carl's statements, so Ricky's statements, the first one and the second one, and then Georgie's statement, first one and the second one. I think they're important to read all of them out, so I'll do that. Uh, let me just pop on my tea. I'm going to have a proper coffee. Let's see. Yeah, there we go. Is that in? Um, this may be a horrible coffee because I don't. Ever since I've been on my diet in May, and I'm, I'm look. I wouldn't say I'm looking svelte. I'm just looking less fat. Um, at Eva's orders, obviously. Um, and so therefore, I'm not really. I used to have my coffee with like two sugars in it, all that, but now I just drink black coffee. And occasionally now I treat myself to my regular coffee. Like, I'll have a coffee with my powdered milk in it and my sugar, but I think the powdered milk has gone old. So you, you put it you put it in the coffee and it goes, oh, good. And then you go to drink it and you go, oh, it's black coffee again. And you realise all the powder has sunk to the bottom. Oh, joy. Oh, joy. Anyway, I'm going to have one of those. So you can hear me grumble about that very shortly. Um, what else is going on? In in After I finish this, I, I'm going back to the eye hospital. Oh, Michael. Um, yeah. I I, my eye seems to be playing up i think i had a couple of days of good vision and now i've gone back to um being able to see out of one eye so one eye, do you know what one eye is better than no eyes so that's that's my philosophy at the moment so this episode was sponsored by one eye there you go uh oh thank you to um uh, new patreon supporters so i want to say thank you to benjamin james thank you to the rough nut and thank you to Bingo Time. 
I mean, I'm sure these are these people's real names. I'm sure. I'm sure that you know. I'm sure that on their birth certificate it says the Rough Nut and Bingo Time. So thank you, Benjamin James. Thank you, the Rough Nut, and thank you to Bingo Time. Thank you very much. So um, my coffee is doing. I tell you what, let's do some quiz questions, and then halfway through, I'll have to dart over and get my coffee. I might not wait for it to boil. I might just do a warmish coffee because you know me. I'll drink a bit of it, then I'll just come. Yeah, I can't be bothered. Have I said welcome to Extra Mile? This is the unscripted, unedited bit. So we're going to do some quiz questions. I'm going to dive into some extra stuff about Georgie in a bit. Uh, and some stuff that never made it into the episode. So, uh, And I'll have a coffee. That's very exciting, Michael. Wow. Um, quiz questions. Don't forget, I haven't edited this episode yet. I haven't edited the last episode yet. I haven't edited the one before that yet. I've still got, I've got so much to do. But I will be done before December. Brilliant. And I'm going to edit. I'm going to record these videos. The videos that no one watches. I'm going to... I'm going to, you can see some of them on TikTok, some on YouTube. Uh, I'm going to do those this weekend before I go out to watch Napoleon at the cinema. Brilliant. That's the highlight of my, my weekend. Michael, your life is so exciting. Um, so let's do this. Quest, quiz question number one. What job did Violet May Hodge do? Question number two. What was George's middle name? Question number three, what country did Georgie live in, age three? Question number four, what was the name of Georgie's husband? Tea's about to go, hang on. I I caught it just before, just before it uh, started boiling. Good, that'll do. Oh, it's a bit stronger than I'd normally have it. I'm a weak tea man. It's because I'm an old man now, and therefore I c- it's decaf. I have to have decaf because I'm an old man. And anyone who's an old man knows you can't have decaf anymore because it makes you wee a lot. Really makes you wee a lot. Like like to the point where you can't hold your wee. It's really embarrassing. I hope I'm not going to end up smelling of pee. Uh, maybe I will. Um, maybe I already do. Uh, question number five. Um, uh, name one of the two clubs where Georgie said that she was a dancer oh a a bonus question there one of those clubs is associated with one of our very early episodes if you can name who the victim was in that club I'm going to give you five extra points there you go that's a bonus that's a biggie bonus question question number six in may 1944 she was arrested you have to remind me that i've done that bonus question because i might forget question number six in may 1944 i don't know how you're going to remind me because i can't hear you can i unless you get into a time machine (sighs) this is not going to work is it in uh, uh, question number six in may 1944 she was arrested for being in possession of what seven items so name three of the seven items uh question number seven on what road did they pick up violet and question number eight in what uk city was violet hodge from so let's dive i tell you what i'm going to go in reverse uh let's uh, what i what i deliberately try and do is make sure that we don't overrun with extra mile because sometimes it goes on too long so what i'm going to do i'm going to go in reverse i've got something that i didn't put in the episode so after they had attacked so they'd attacked uh john strangeway the taxi driver uh which had failed over in kilburn and then they come down <coughs> road 
and they went in search of uh, oh they they picked up Violet right and then they attacked her and then because there was a, a cold like a coldness between them they went off to go and attack someone else so I'll read this um this is the point afterwards i was going to put this in the story but i couldn't work out how to make it work in there so in the end i decided not to put it in there um and I th- i'm not too sure i think this is kind of part of ricky is kind of feeling very much like a failure he's even though they've attacked a girl and they've left her for dead they don't know that she's not dead but they've attacked her for the dead that should be the point where they're like you know as as this kind of killer couple they should be like yes we've done this but for some reason it's not there or or, for, or it hasn't satisfied everything so uh elizabeth who is georgie said ricky and i went round to the car park and saw uh, the ford v8 there ricky said uh it's all right we have hang on let me get, get past this but uh okay right let me just whiz on uh we then drove to pick a piccadilly uh and saw a prostitute wearing a fur coat which seemed to attract to ricky's eye this is uh georgina saying this he said i'll get the girl and get the coat but there were some policemen standing near so we prowled around and round. we gave some sh- soldiers a lift from one place to another during the night we returned to Piccadilly to try and pick up the prostitute with the fur coat and Ricky was disappointed because he saw her walking off with an American soldier. We got back to Wood Lane in Shepherd's Bush about 7am on Monday morning and went to a cafe and had some eats. Uh, we left the car outside the cafe which was near Wormwood Scrubs. So it, it, it's weird. They've, they've already... They've, it's escalated and escalated and at this point they haven't killed George Heath but it's escalating and escalating and then having already picked up an 18 year old girl alone driven her to an isolated area beaten her over the head strangled her and dumped her in the Thames and stolen her stuff you would think that they would be satisfied by that but they're not so um, there's not a huge amount on that but um, I couldn't quite work out what to do with it so uh there's that also there was more to the falling out as well this is this is something that was happening and happening over time and i didn't want to draw attention to it i wanted this to be i wanted you to think that this story was going that it was it was they were escalating and escalating and then there's going to be a big police chase and a shootout something like that something exciting but it's not it's really interesting that it, it all collapses because of arrogance and jealousy and I kind of referenced at the start that you know he, he he's married and he's got a girlfriend and he's cheating on his girlfriend. You know he's he's like that and she's she doesn't really care about men. She just kind of will shag anything. She's just not that bothered. Um, so she was actually cheating on him as well. Uh, so uh, this was the Sunday. So this is the day after George Heath's body was found, and this is the day before the arrest. So uh, Georgina said, I stayed in all day until about 8 p.m. Obviously, as mentioned before, you've got to kind of take her word for this. uh, But most of it may not be true. Uh, When I went out to buy cigarettes, I could not get any in the black and white cafe. I went over to the public house near the Marley uh, Metropolitan Railway Station. I saw an RAF man go into the pub and she asked him if she could. She asked him uh, if he could get her 20 players cigarettes. Um, just to point out don't forget this is 1945 so women can't go into pubs by themselves women have to be escorted into pubs by men uh, we still in britain had it that women could not go into pubs by themselves uh, without a man to, man to accompany them up until i think it was mid 1970s i think it was 73 or 74 
<coughs> so that's why she has to do that and that's where she's getting her cigarettes from uh she said at 10 p.m he asked me if he could walk me home uh, he'd invited her in for a drink i think his name was mac we don't really know what his name was but obviously being a a serviceman uh, his name is mac because apparently they're all called mac and then uh, if if there's uh if he's from scotland his name is jock we've seen all the war films we know that there's mac and jock and ginger just just ridiculous uh she said at 10 p.m he asked me asked me if i could if he could walk me home don't forget her home is just down king street and that's the route they went down in george heath's cab so as they went from cadby hall down king street uh to where they were to ultimately kill george they actually went past george's flat uh i said yes and i took him up to my room dirty girl uh whilst i was in my room he asked me what was worrying me and i told him about the murder i told him that i had been with a man who had shot a fellow and that his name was george heath of kennington uh, obviously by this point it's all across the papers it's front page of news he asked me what was the motive i said robbery and asked uh, and asked him what i should do about it he said do as your conscience guides you so i asked what i should do if my conscience told me nothing that says a lot really there uh he told me uh i thought uh, uh i should tell the police about ricky and said i don't know what to do because i am frightened see she's even in her alibi she's going oh i'm frightened do you know maybe she was we don't know but um given that given the way that she's taking part in these murders I, it, it doesn't seem likely especially with what violet may hodge says the fact that you know um she was going georgie georgie help me because she got she'd been talking to georgie for about an hour in the cabin and they got on well they're about the same age and uh she she said georgie just laughed while she was being strangled i think that says more than all this bullshit about oh i was frightened uh he said uh would you like me to do something for you such as going to the police and georgie said no um i said is there anything you need me to uh, do you can write to me and she gave uh, he gave her her uh, his name and address which she wrote down uh, the rvf officer was not identified um she then said i then heard a whistle in the street and i rec- which i recognized as ricky i told mac not ginger not uh, jock but mac uh who he was and went down to the street door and let ricky in i told him that i had a friend in my room and he became jealous so i told him that my friend had been sent up uh, to me uh, by my people in wales he believed me ricky sat on the stairs and as mac came out of the door i introduced them before mac left my room i told ricky um i told him ricky was the man who had shot heath uh, now we don't know who the ref man is uh, he doesn't seem to have come forward and make made a statement so um all of that could be bullshit it's interesting that ricky as far as far as i remember uh it may crop up when we do the statements i don't remember ricky mentioning mac so it could it, it could all be bullshit but we don't know um joyce alma cook so she was the girlfriend she was the new girlfriend of uh ricky ricky i, f- I find it really difficult anyone who's british probably struggled through that episode uh with with the name ricky ricky so it's an eastenders thing if you type in eastenders ricky you'll hear bianca go ricky uh that was in my head all the way through that uh so joyce alma cook uh 16 years old uh, she lived with her mother and father at 159 
Fulham Palace Road. I have difficulty saying that because my mate Stu always used to refer to it as um, <laughs> Fulham Phallus Road. <laughs> and it, uh, once it's in your head, you can't get it out of your head. Uh, she lived in the first first floor front flat, uh, but the entrance to it was on Lurgan Avenue. Um, she said 3pm on Sunday the 1st of October 1944. So that's before uh, before Ricky had met Georgie. Uh, she said she went with her friend Elsie Clark and Elsie's boyfriend Ronald to the Galmont Cinema in Hammondsmith. Uh, the Galmont Cinema is still there today. Uh, it looks almost identical. It's now called the Hammersmith Apollo. Well, I call it the Hammersmith Apollo. Um I think it's now called the Labats because obviously branding and shit. Uh, but it's, it's where all the big venues are. It used to be a really good cinema as well. Um, Reg Christie associated with the Galmont as well. If you go back to the Reg Christie stories, you'll hear. I think he met one of the victims outside there. Uh, I did mention that too uh, when um, my favourite murder. Oh my God, I'm so neurotic. Oh my God. When they were going to do, they said they were going to Hammers, coming to there to perform. Uh, to talk about Reg Christie, and I messaged them and said, just so you know, there's a really interesting thing that Reg Christie met one of his victims outside there. You might want to mention it. Um, they didn't. <sighs> there you go. Just just de- details that draw you, connect you to that bloody venue, but they couldn't be asked to do it. Uh, so at 6.30pm, she said, came out, a US Army officer smiled at her and an Englishman. Now, we know that Englishman is uh, uh, Len Beck's bexley who's uh ricky ricky let's keep calling ricky is his his mate who we met in part two uh she smiled back it was raining they entered the shop doorway the airman followed her and said he would like to take her to the milk bar that was a popular kind of hangout across london there was a lot of them uh and she said yeah yeah let's meet in about half an hour um she knew she said the airman was richard allen aka ricky now we know that as carl they went to the Broadway cinema, which is the, the Hammersmith Apollo, uh, came out about 8.50 p.m. Uh, he took her to the back of the Galmont Cinema, so that's the car park at the back. Oh, lucky girl. Uh, she saw a big American truck with a star on it. So that is the two-and-a-half-ton six-wheeled truck. There's some references in there to it being an, a, a ten-wheeled truck. Um, I've kept it as a six-wheeled truck because most of them were six-wheeled trucks, but um, you know, some of them were ten-wheeled trucks. Uh, it really doesn't make much difference in the story, let's be honest. Um, unless the story was about wheels. Um, he invited her inside. She refused. She said, I don't like the look of it. Uh, she said, let's go home. And he walked her home. Uh, she invited him up to the flat and introduced her to his parents. He said his name was Richard Allen, that he was 27, and attached to the paratroopers stationed in Newbury. Originally, he was from Massachusetts. He said he was single. Uh, he wasn't uh, He wasn't a paratrooper either. And she arranged to meet him the next day. Uh, interestingly, um, her parents really seemed to like him. They seemed to get on really well. And he even turned up so... The clothing he was wearing, not the bloodied ones that he'd given to uh, Georgie to take to the cleaners, but his other ones the next day. Um, the mother of Joyce, who's his girlfriend there, she'd actually washed them. So um, the, a lot of evidence was destroyed in that. But obviously her, her mother didn't know that he was he was a murderer. Um, so those were the clothes. I can't remember. No, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, the, so there was a lot of lot of back and forth on this. I was going to put it in the story throughout that we kind of show the timings of when he's with 
uh, when he's with Georgie and when he's with Joyce, it's kind of back and forth. Like he's playing one off against the other, which is interesting because Joyce is Joyce is very innocent. Joyce is very kind of just 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 a girl, just a girl. She's like a a shop assistant. She's just left school. Do you know, she's she's a little bit shy. It's, uh, and then you've got Georgie, who's a little bit more exciting and kind of wants wants danger and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah his life could have gone one way or the other and um if he would have stayed with joyce would he have ended up doing killings i doubt it he is he, clearly a thief in just the same way that um georgie is a, a thief as well um and i think he's he's definitely got a kind of a sense of uh, a hatred of authority uh and that kind of theft of military stock like you know the uniforms and the gun and uh the truck you know that's kind of his his rebellion against that but there doesn't and there doesn't seem to be a desire for assault he doesn't have assault in his back history so um i think i think he's one of those weak-willed slightly stupid people who are kind of pressured by a um a girl who we found tra- attractive and was like oh do anything for her like an absolute tit so uh yeah um uh, it's georgie's past <sighs> i don't really know what to say i think we've got I, I i've pretty much put as much as i can into the episode uh what we got it comes from a good family um i think a, a family pretty much said that from early life she was pretty good but it was kind of especially in the teenage years she was a real uh, quite difficult Uh, we don't really know what's going on um obviously i I mentioned in the story about the fact that she said she'd been uh uh, accosted by uh a young man her father said soon after we came back from canada i think she was nine years old she complained to her mother that a man had interfered with her uh i reported the matter to the neath police police but no action followed i I went through all the reports that we could find on that there's literally nothing on it police couldn't find out who the man was so maybe it did happen maybe this was kind of something that sparked off maybe it didn't happen at all she's uh there's a lot in her past about you know she's very sexually driven she's very needy for her father's attention she's very much a daddy's girl so i think it's a a lot going on there's a lot of lies going on so i I don't think we'll ever know what the truth is Uh, as mentioned in the episode uh now this is a juvenile crime so so this isn't on her criminal record because she was underage at this point but um 30th of may 1940 at neath juvenile magistrates court she was charged with being a person in respect of whom an offense mentioned in the first schedule of the children and young persons act 1933 had been committed uh requiring care and protection now it wasn't stated what was in there so i went through the first schedule of the young persons act of 1933 and it was very vague so either either she was a victim or she was a culprit and given the fact that she was put into an approved school afterwards it seems more likely that she was a a culprit um it was suggested that it could have been a suicide attempt but if it was a suicide attempt surely they would have put her in a hospital 
a mental health facility, a psychiatric unit, which they wouldn't have had then, but uh, something like that. Whereas instead they put them in an approved school and an approved school is basically a borstal, which is kind of the junior version of before you're old enough to go to prison. That's where they put you first. So it makes sense that she would be the culprit of something then. So all I could boil it down to was it was either... uh, the battery and assault of a child or they said the manslaughter or murder of a child but given the fact that she was sent to an approved school uh, for two years and then was released on license i think it's less likely to be the murder of a child or a manslaughter of a child i think it's more likely to be the assault or battery of a child so it's that but i went through all the newspapers that i could find in neath and I couldn't find any reference to this. I could I, I could find bits and pieces, but I couldn't find out exactly what it was. And given the fact that the victim would have been underage, that's all we know. So uh, I think that kind of rules out that. Um, oh, I'm getting bunged up. I hope this isn't a, a winter cold. Best bloody not be. Eva would be very unhappy because that means I'll be bedridden. And I, there's only so many jobs I can do for her in bed. Ooh, uh. Let's see how my coffee's doing. Has it all sunk? It has. It's all see. It's all sunk, and then if I stir it, it goes to a nice-ish brown. But if I don't stir it, then I'll drink the black coffee, and then I'll tip it away, and I go, "Oh, look at that horrible sludge on the bottom." I'm just not really doing dairy anymore, anyway. Right. Let's do the quiz questions. Uh, let's see how many you got. We'll do the bonus one as well. Well remembered, Michael. Well done. Question number one: What job did Violet May Hodge do? She was a waitress. Question number two. What was Georgie's middle name? Well, she claimed it was Marina, but it was actually Maud. Her real name, Elizabeth Maud Baker. Don't forget Jones. Well, there you go. Well, that was that's the fourth question. Uh, Jones was her married name. Jones, of course it was. She's Welsh. Jones. She's, it's either Jones or Williams or Thomas. All right, what? Question number three. What country did Georgie live in, age three? It was Canada. E. Question number four, what was the name of her husband? Just gave you the last part. The first part was Stanley, so it was Stanley Jones. Stanley Jones. Question number five, uh, with a bonus question as well. Name one of the two clubs that she claimed that she was a dancer at. So one was the Panama Club in Knightsbridge. And the other was the Blue Lagoon in Carnaby Street. So for five bonus points, who was the victim who we mentioned in a very, 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 very early episode of Murder Mile who was murdered just outside the Blue Lagoon Club, actually, in 1948, so a couple of years after this? It was Margaret Cook. I think that's episode 13. Uh, Question number six. In May 1944, she was arrested for being in possession of uh, what seven items? So if you name three of them, I will give you the point. It was chocolate, eggs, flour, milk, cigarettes, two haversacks, and a large reel of parachute silk. Uh, Question number seven, on what road did they pick up Violet? It was Edgware, Edgware Road. Uh, And question number eight, where in the UK was Violet Hodge from? Bristol, or as they say in Bristol, Brizzle. Um, 
so that's it folks uh i'm gonna put out some extra stuff just after this so uh you'll be able to enjoy that the extra stuff in there if, if you if you like getting deep into the story you can enjoy those you don't have to listen to them immediately afterwards you can do it at, at your leisure uh, i think this episode goes out 23rd of december or something so very near christmas so i um even though even though I, i'm near the end of november i've just got a week of november left i'm years away bye i'm a month ago uh, i'm in the past whoa crazy um so i hope you're all enjoying the festive period i hope you're all full of stuff i will be busy uh kowtowing to eva hopefully if, if i can get enough booze into her she'll be collapsed and then i can kind of have a little bit of time off although is it possible to get enough booze into her i mean i think if i get like a a, a cement truck and I tip it and have her lying on the floor with her mouth open and just fill it full of, you know, um, uh, 100% Polish vodka, petrol, napalm, the usual stuff that might satisfy her for a little while. And then I can maybe get an hour off. But failing that, I'll, I'll just be working all Christmas anyway. Uh, I will be doing my usual Christmas as always. I, I, I'll, I do the family stuff before and afterwards. And then Christmas Day, I spend by myself. And I wake up and I have bacon sandwich, best bacon sandwiches, uh, fondant fancies. And then I have nice treats throughout the day. And I save up all my favourite films for that day. And I pop the fire on and I go for a nice walk. And I eat chocolates and I get really sick. And that is how I spend Christmas Day. And I, I and I don't have to I don't have to do what people I don't have to go to great auntie flows and sit there and eat some substandard uh, sprouts and all that crap and, and and then just shit that you don't want to do and you just think oh my god it's my Christmas day why can't I do what I want to do on my Christmas day and just enjoy myself so that's what I do and everyone just goes oh aren't you lonely and I'm like no I'm having a bloody lovely time uh and then just after that i'm going to go back up to my hometown and visit friends and i'm going to go stay to my brothers and then new year's eve i'm going to do what i always do and i hate new year's eve which is i in the evening i get a really really expensive steak i treat myself to a one good steak and dauphinoise and green beans and then a selection of all those beers that you never normally can afford to buy but you think fuck it's new year's eve i'm going to have them and i have those and i watch uh casablanca Shawshank Redemption, sometimes Dirty Harry, classic movies. And then by 10 p.m. I go to bed, I put in my earplugs, and then I fuck off to sleep. And I don't even say Happy New Year. And then in the morning, I wake up nice and early with no hangover when everyone's grumbling about it and going, oh, I need to be in work the next day and I'm struggling. And I don't. I go on a nice big walk and I go, welcome the new year. I don't have a hangover. So there you go. Oh all good so that's me done folks uh have yourself a good one stay safe be good thank you for supporting the show uh and oh oh uh god i think normally at this point i should normally say when murder mile's coming back don't forget i'll probably take a little bit of time off in january uh this is weird because it's november and i'm having to talk about january I i'll take some time off in january because i've got loads of research to do and loads of loads of extra outside murder mile podcast projects to do as well i'm gonna be a really busy next year next year but a very good one uh, and what i'm hoping to do is to do another three part with police constable arsenal guinness and the metropolitan blood we're hoping to record that at police constable arsenal guinness hq in january so that hopefully that uh, hopefully i'll have organized that already because that'll be great so we'll do that and then i think murder mile will restart end of january proper uh, I've got a big series that I think I might be starting with if I can get my head around it because it is big and it was controversial and uh, I don't know whether I'm going to do that. We'll see. Anyway, that's that done. 
have yourself a good week folks stay safe be good thank you for supporting the show and uh merry christmas and all that yeah have a good one lots of love everyone bye-bye want to get a chiseled look in the jawline sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from juvederm volux xc juvederm volux xc is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist visit juvederm.com that's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.